Oh, we don't. Great. So as I think most of you know, we've been spending quite a few weeks now exploring this theme of community or Sangha, all the different aspects of it, how we come together in uh, friendship, in generosity, in kindness. And I wanted to continue exploring this today because I don't know about for any of you, but for me at least, the connections that Sangha supports, they feel more needed now more than ever. And as I briefly mentioned last week, I've just come back from six weeks at the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, IMS. And in some ways, as many of you know, IMS is kind of the mothership for this whole lineage or tradition. And after not having been back there for two and a half years, after the, you know, what they say, absence makes the heart grow fonder. <laughs> I just realized, you know, there's a lot there that I'd been taking for granted and I appreciated it even more. What I appreciated was living and working in an environment where pretty much everybody is doing their best to be more aware, be more awake, more conscious, more compassionate, more caring. Now, in saying that, I'm not idealizing it. Like any group of people anywhere, including here, none of us are perfect. We all have our struggles, our challenges, our issues, and sometimes actually being in community can magnify those in certain ways. But still, compared to maybe broad mainstream society around us, and especially in the US, being in Sangha, being in community felt like a refuge from the pressures of ordinary everyday life and you know, just the culture where, again, as a very broad generalization, not everybody is living, is interested even in living more ethically for the benefit of themselves, the benefit of others, and the planet as a whole. So while I was at IMS, I had the opportunity to reconnect with teachers and friends, teachers who live in the area like Joseph Goldstein and Bhikkhu Analio, and then many other teachers who were visiting to teach from other parts of the US and the world. So as I reconnected with all of these very dear people, I had a, a new appreciation for how somewhere like IMS acts as a kind of a beacon or a magnet that draws good people to it, draws good people, draws good energy. And it's reciprocal because as people come and offer their goodness, we get to receive that goodness. And so last week I mentioned the sense of taking in some of that, the aspiration to bring it back. And in the discourses, they talk about how Sangha is an incomparable field of merit in the world. And that's a kind of old fashioned term that Together we create this field of merit where we can gather what's good and then offer it back. And again, I'm not wanting to idealize this, but I think it's worth acknowledging because in the context of everyday life and all the pressures and pushes and pulls, it's very easy to take this for granted. 
And even coming here on Thursday, I think, oh, well, it won't make any difference if I don't show up, but it does. And here in New Zealand, we don't have our own retreat center. We don't have a dedicated space to gather. But in some ways, that makes it more important that when we do have these opportunities to come together and connect, that we really make the most of them as we are. So this is part of the uh, aspiration in offering the Vesak day long on Sunday, which I know many of you are coming to, and many of you are supporting through volunteering and so forth, and just really appreciate how many people are stepping up to support that day. So it'll give us an opportunity to explore some of these themes that we can't go into just on a Thursday night once a week. We can go into a little bit more depth. So a few weeks ago, some of you shared how in our online gatherings that even on Zoom, the Zoom gatherings felt very different than a work meeting or a family gathering on Zoom. And part of that is because of this mutual intentionality, this mutual intention to be more aware, to be more present, to be more awake. And in my experience, at least that does create a kind of energy field. So even if you were sitting together online, and especially here in the room, I wonder if you felt that. I'm guessing it was different than if you'd just been sitting by yourself at home. So there's some kind of energy that gets raised when we come together. So we have the support of this shared intention. And at the same time, we have the opportunity to connect to a whole range of different life experiences. And those different life experiences, they can enrich our own understanding. So I think in mainstream society, at best, differences are tolerated. Here we have an opportunity to not only tolerate, but to appreciate them. It really makes a difference when we can learn how to step out of our own, at times, maybe narrow viewpoint and take in different, perhaps very different perspectives and understandings. It enhances our own wisdom. So with that as context, during one of the talks earlier in the year, I briefly mentioned how coming together as a Sangha can give us a collective strength to turn towards some of the challenges of our time. And I mentioned a few such as racism and social oppression and the environmental crisis that's intensifying all over the world. So I wanted to experiment now with extending this understanding of community, of Sangha, to include what's more and more becoming known as the more than human world. The more than human world includes all living beings besides just human beings. So animals, birds, fish, insects, even plants. And I think it's telling that we have had to come up with a phrase for this, the more than human world, because that tells us just how disconnected at least Western mainstream society has become from living beings, from our entire ecosystem. So in the context of the Dharma, my understanding is that at the time of the Buddha, 
there wasn't such a deep disconnection between humans and the natural world. In the suttas, there's a lot of respect and even reverence for other life forms. There are many descriptions of animals and their behavior that clearly come from careful observation of those beings in their natural habitats. And the Buddha often instructed people to go out of the towns and the villages and to go and practice in the wilderness, in the forest, as it often says, at the root of a tree. So I'm guessing that people in the time of the Buddha had a much closer connection to the whole natural environment than many of us do today. So as I was exploring this theme, I discovered a podcast on this theme of broadening our sense of community to include all beings. And this podcast is called Kinship with the More Than Human World. And it makes the point that in various cultures around the world, human identity cannot be separated from our non-human kin. The landscapes we call home, the grasslands and forests, mountains and rocks, rivers and oceans, these are shared by non-human beings who may be considered relatives. Age-old myths and modern science reinforce these kinship relationships. So from forest ecology to the human microbiome, emerging research is finding these connections more and more clearly. And that series of podcasts includes an interview with Robin Wall Kimmerer, who some of you know, the Native American botanist and scientist that actually Liz put me onto a few years ago. She has a beautiful book called Braiding Sweetgrass that really brings to life just, at least for me, how disconnected our mainstream society is in relation to the natural world. So worth a read if you get a chance. So Robin Wall Kimra makes the point that in her native American language, living beings are not referred to as it. They're referred to as people, as she and her and he and so on. And she says that her language, I'm not sure I'll pronounce it right, Anishinaabemowin, about 70% of that language is verbs, compared to English, which is 70% nouns. So you get a sense of even the language is reflecting that living quality. And she says it's this notion of living in a completely different world where that world is alive and you are related to it. And then she makes the point that the colonization of her country, that worldview was completely changed. And she says this was not a passive forgetting. This change of worldview from the industrial colonial frontier mindset to overlay the indigenous way of knowing was no accident. It was very, very deliberate. If you came into a world where you saw those pine trees where people were teachers who were giving you medicine and who were caring for you, would you come in and claim every damn one of them for the King of England? Would you devastate that landscape? In our way of thinking, she says, Native American, it was a genocide of pine trees. And there's trauma and suffering associated with that. 
But if you don't think of them as kin, if you don't think of them as people, if you only think of them as property and natural resources, then you're morally blameless. There's no guilt. So itting the world does create a moral distance. It enables and gives permission for exploitation because it's just stuff. And then she says, there is another way of putting your hands in the earth and getting to work and saying, yes, we've made a lot of mistakes, but we can be healers too. When the crops are a person, when the trees are a person, when a deer is a person, you can't just take. You have to show respect to that person. You have to ask permission. You have to negotiate a trade. There has to be reciprocity. So as many of you here know, this is similar to Te Ao Māori, the Māori worldview, where in traditional Māori knowledge, everything in the world is believed to be related. People and birds and fish and trees, weather patterns, they're all members of a cosmic family. And whakapapa and genealogies and stories, they express that kinship with the world. They express the relationship between humans and the rest of nature. So now possibly some of you here might feel like we've lost that kind of kinship. And maybe there's a feeling of sadness. But I believe it's possible to restore a sense of connection. Just like Robin Wall Kimmerer says, getting our hands in the earth and bringing more awareness to how are we relating to the natural world, to expand our understanding of Sangha so that it includes all beings, and to start by honoring and acknowledging where and how we do feel some sense of connection, and then we can build on that. So that's what I'd like to invite us to explore in small groups now, either in the room or online if you like. I just invite you to bring to mind a time, a place, when maybe you have experienced some sense of deeper connectedness to the natural world. So to give just one example that's also named in the podcast, it talks about a certain kind of visual encounter that can be life-changing. And it's known as a cross-species gaze, a cross-species gaze. So when you make eye contact with some other kind of species, and it's called an eye-to-eye -eye epiphany. I don't know if any of you have had an experience like that in the wild. Perhaps for some of you, it's with a pet, a domestic animal, a dog or a cat. For some of you, it might be through gardening or hiking or spending time in your special favorite wild place. So as we explore this, I invite you to see if you can describe some very specific examples of feeling that sense of kinship. So, for example, instead of just saying, oh, I feel connected when I'm in my garden, see if you can bring to mind an actual example. Maybe one time you saw a grasshopper sitting on a leaf and the sun was shining on it in just such a way that it was almost translucent green and you were entranced watching it for a few moments and felt a sense of wonder. 
So that's just a few suggestions. It's possible some of you might feel like, I don't feel any kind of kinship with the natural world. So if that's true for you, not so much judging it, but just exploring what are the causes and the conditions that have created that sense of disconnection. So is that clear what I'm inviting you to do? I'm going to uh, post those questions in the chat box. So just for a moment, those of you on screen who would like to do this, I'm going to invite Claire to put you into groups of two, if that's going to work numbers wise. And then the rest of you, I just invite you to find a partner somewhere nearby and then set yourselves up around the room together and then I'll talk you through the process. So thank you everyone. Thanks 